In June 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its opinion in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which left the door open for constitutional challenges to state and federal firearm restrictions. Since then, two federal courts have applied the Bruin decision in cases involving a law aimed at protecting people who have experienced intimate partner violence. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Elizabeth Tobin Tyler, an Associate Professor at the Brown University School of Public Health and Warren Alpert Medical School. Professor Tobin Tyler has written a perspective article about intimate partner violence and challenges to restrictions on firearm possession. Professor Tobin Tyler, could you start by explaining the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin and the new approach it laid out for assessing firearm regulations? Sure. So I would like to start by discussing a previous case that laid out the analysis that the Supreme Court had applied to the Second Amendment, essentially to determine when the government could impose restrictions on gun possession, gun ownership. And in that case, the court had basically used a two-part test. The test was, does the Second Amendment apply to the conduct involved? And the second part of the test would say, if the Second Amendment applied, had the government shown that its regulation is substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest. The importance of this test was that it allowed the government to come forward with evidence that a gun restriction, a firearm restriction, had a particular interest in protecting public safety. When the Bruin Court analyzed the case that came before it last June, it was considering a New York state law that imposed restrictions on people carrying firearms in public. And in that case, the court, to analyze whether or not this restriction violated the Second Amendment, considered two questions. And this really changed the analysis that previously had been used by the court in Second Amendment analysis. So in this case, the court said, does the Second Amendment apply? But rather than applying that original means-ends test, in other words, a test considering the balancing of the interests of the individual under the Second Amendment to possess a firearm with the government's consideration of public safety, the court said no longer would it consider that second question. The second question it would consider in this case was, is there a history and tradition of a restriction that is an analog to the type that's being applied through the law? at issue in this particular case. So in Bruin, it had to do with the government's ability to make decisions about who may carry firearms in public. And so what the court decided in Bruin was that while states may still be able to regulate firearms, and in particular, they noted that there may still be restrictions that are legitimate in sensitive places, the court made it much more difficult for the government to come forward with arguments regarding particularly modern day issues around public safety, around gun violence, and I would say particularly the public health evidence of gun violence as an argument for upholding a particular government restriction. Instead, the court said the government's burden was defined in history and particularly at the time of the founding of the country or at the time when the Bill of Rights was applied to the states in the mid 19th century a historical analog to the law that was being imposed at this time in 2023. In your perspective article, you discuss two recent court cases pertaining to a federal law that was passed as part of the Violence Against Women Act. What does that law say and why is it important for protecting people who've experienced intimate partner violence? So the Violence Against Women Act was passed in 1994. 
It was at a time when Congress was recognizing the impact of intimate partner violence on women in particular. And what the law did was many things, but in this case in particular, it had a provision that restricted the ability of people who were subject to domestic violence restraining orders. I should say not all restraining orders. Typically, when a person seeks a restraining order in state court, they seek first a temporary order, and then second, they can come back usually about 10 days later to seek a permanent order. So the Violence Against Women Act had a provision that said those who had obtained a permanent restraining order against an intimate partner, essentially under the law, the person who was subject to that restraining order, the domestic abuser, it was unlawful for them to possess or to purchase a firearm. And this really came out of recognition by Congress of a lot of important data that was coming forward with regard to the use of firearms in intimate partner violence, particularly the homicide rate related to intimate partner violence. And so that was Congress's response to the use of firearms and the importance of reducing the likelihood that a person who was subject to a restraining order, domestic violence restraining order, would have access to a firearm. And then back to those two recent cases, United States versus Perez Galan and United States versus Rahimi. What were the facts in the cases and what did the courts decide? So Perez Galan was a case out of the Western District in Texas. And in that case, there was an allegation by Mr. Perez Galan's former girlfriend that he had been violent against her, that there was a history of domestic abuse. And she had sought a restraining order, as was typical under state law, and also sought under the valor protection that we just discussed that Mr. Perez Galan essentially relinquish his firearms in order to protect her from further violence, and particularly firearm violence. And in that case, the court Again, at this point, looking at what the Supreme Court had decided in June under the Bruin case, applied this new analysis that the court had applied in Bruin, which essentially looked specifically at whether or not there was a history and tradition of, particularly at the time of the founding of the country, but also in the mid-19th century, of the government requiring the relinquishment or at least restricting the possession of guns by people subject to charges of domestic violence. Now, of course, if we look at the history of particularly domestic violence law, we know that at the time of the founding of the country, married women were not considered legal subjects for purposes of having legal rights. And certainly Black women at the time had no legal rights. And so the question was, is there an analog under this analysis to laws at that time that would potentially allow the government to restrict access to firearms for people who were alleged to have committed domestic violence. And the court looks at this and says, well, no, there's certainly no analog at that time of state law or a federal law that would restrict access to firearms. And essentially says that the only question in this case, because of the Bruin decision, is is there a history and tradition of this type of restriction? And so I think this case really demonstrates the challenges that the court has placed on the government in trying to restrict firearms in modern day America based on evidence, particularly in this area of the use of firearms in intimate partner violence. And I will say the court acknowledged that 
domestic violence law itself is relatively new. Certainly the Violence Against Women Act was passed in 1994, which is just 30 years ago. But that actually becomes the sort of reason that the court rejects the ability of the government, in this case, under the VAWA provision, to restrict firearms to Mr. Perez-Galan. And so we have sort of no way under this analysis to look at the current status of the use of firearms in intimate partner violence. So what do you expect will happen next? Do you think these rulings are going to be appealed? The government, the U.S. Justice Department, has definitely said that it will appeal the Rahimi case, which is a case that was decided in the Fifth Circuit. This followed the Perez-Galan decision. Of course, this is at the appellate levels. That case is restricted to, or the decision is restricted to, that circuit in terms of the ruling. In that case, the court decided similarly to the Perez-Galan decision that there was no historical analog that could be used to justify the Violence Against Women Act restriction on people subject to domestic violence restraining orders. So the government has said that it will appeal that Fifth Circuit decision. I think the question now will be if it is appealed and it does make its way to the Supreme Court, it's not clear exactly how this particular Supreme Court might respond to this case. What do you think the long-term implications would be if this provision of the Violence Against Women Act is struck down across the country? I really think that's a very dire circumstance if we end up without the Violence Against Women Act protection for ensuring that people that are subject to domestic violence restraining orders may not possess or purchase firearms. Actually, under the law currently, enforcement has been pretty lax, depending on the state, in terms of whether judges actually apply the law to the extent that they require that there's a relinquishment of the firearm. So already, there's much that could be done to improve it. But certainly, if the courts were to determine that it is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, I think we could expect, unfortunately, an increase in intimate partner violence-related homicide, injury. We know from the data that these laws actually work. There is good evidence that restrictions on firearm possession by people who are domestic abusers actually does reduce homicide among intimate partner violence victims. We also have seen recently, between 2010 and 2020, there was an increase of intimate partner violence-related homicide. So this is a problem that has already been increasing in the United States. And certainly, if we are not able to apply restrictions on firearm possession, I think that's going to only get worse. Finally, moving forward, what other types of firearm regulations could be affected by Bruin's new approach to Second Amendment analysis? Yeah, I think that's a good question. There are real concerns that using this history and tradition analysis that other types of firearm restrictions may be struck down by the courts. The court indicated, as I said earlier, that it may be legitimate for governments to restrict firearms in sensitive places, meaning schools, courts, particularly busy areas where lots of people congregate, but the court's been very unclear about what those look like. Furthermore, I think we may run into the same kinds of problems with other types of firearm restrictions. If the court is unable to find a historical analog that it applies to that particular restriction, so certainly you could argue that things like background checks were not implemented at the time of the founding of the country or in the 19th century. So I really think it depends on how the courts are going to apply this new analysis, and it's very much to be seen the way in which courts are going to do that. Thank you, Professor Tobin Tyler.